Doctors Figlin and Hudes commented on the ASCO presentation by Dr. Bob Mozer evaluating the mTOR inhibitor RAD001 in patients with progressive disease after one or both of the available TKIs. I met with Dr. Ronald Bukowski for his take on this critical trial and other data sets presented at ASCO. It really answers several questions that we've all had in our minds regarding treatment of patients when they fail current therapies. And this really is the vast majority of patients who we now treat with drugs such as sunitinib or serafinib or bevacizumab, if you will. And the study design was a very nice one. It looked at patients who had failed previously drugs such as sunitinib, serafinib, or both. Now, they weren't restricted to only those therapies. They could have had other treatments in the past, and many of them did. We don't know the numbers there, but they all failed what would be considered standard treatments today with the kinase inhibitors, sunitinib and serafinib. And the study was asking a very straightforward question. That is, if you give a patient the agent in question, which was RAD001 or everolimus, it's an mTOR inhibitor, would there be a superior result in terms of progression-free survival compared to a placebo? I thought that was interesting, you know, in trying to pull a trial like that off. It is. It was very demanding to try to get that number of patients. Now, they needed a sample size of 410 patients, so that's a large amount. But in reality, when you consider that all patients who do receive these medications ultimately fail, there was a large cohort to draw from. So I think the most demanding part of it was probably the placebo control. Absolutely. What made this more palatable, I think, was that there was a crossover. So when patients failed the placebo, they were allowed to get the investigational drug, RAD001. So that made it more palatable. In our previous study with the TARGETS trial, we didn't have a crossover built in until we saw a positive result. So this made it more palatable. So what did they see there? So they saw a result that validated the fact that this particular drug appears to prolong time to progression, measured by progression-free survival, in this patient group. The numbers specifically were a median of 1.8 months for patients getting the placebo, median progression-free survival, that is, and four months for patients getting the investigational drug, so a doubling. Now, you can look at this result in several ways. One is, is an improvement in progression-free survival of two months that meaningful, Well, in the setting of a patient who will progress following a placebo or VEGF inhibitor, it may well be. And we must remember that it's a continuum, that four months purely means that that's the median. There were patients who clearly did better than that. And actually, at the presentation, Bob Mozart provided some examples of patients who had been on this drug well over a year and actually responded. Now, the drug appears to have its predominant effect by delaying progression of disease. There are clearly patients who have some tumor regressions, but the actual measured response rate is quite low. It's probably less than 5%. So this is another example of a serafinib-type drug that doesn't have a high regression rate, but does appear to delay tumor growth. Now, parenthetically, is that also the case with temsorolinus? Exactly the same. Low response rates, less than 10%. And a major effect appears to be one of increasing the proportion of patients with stable disease or the group that has a delay in progression. What about side effects and toxicity? There wasn't too much attention paid to side effects. I think he did show some quality of life that the drug didn't impair quality of life, number one, compared to the placebo, and that's good to know. The main toxicity that has concerned some of us regarding 
this particular drug is pulmonary toxicity. And they looked very carefully for any evidence of pulmonary toxicity, and even in the asymptomatic patients. So they didn't only use the development of cough or pulmonary symptoms. They had all CAT scans reviewed to determine whether there were asymptomatic pulmonary infiltrates. And there's a fairly high frequency of these asymptomatic pulmonary infiltrates, but they indeed are asymptomatic, and they're meaningless, and for the most part, they respond very nicely to holding the drug. And patients who have symptomatic pulmonary complications, usually cough or a little bit of dyspnea, respond quite rapidly to holding the drug or to corticosteroids in that case. And again, same thing with temsorolimus? So the temsorolimus data is less robust with regard to understanding that particular effect because they didn't look that carefully. All they did is look at patients who had symptomatic pulmonary disease or symptomatic pulmonary problems, and the frequency there is pretty low. It was less than 5%, I think, in terms of grade 3 findings. And so they really didn't look at and review scans to determine were there asymptomatic infiltrates that developed in these patients. Any sort of clinical or biologic differences between these two mTOR inhibitors other than the fact that I guess the RAD is oral and TEM is IV? Well, I mean, that's the important difference. Number one, one is intravenous and one is oral. Number two, the schedules are different. One is given daily, that is the RAD compound, and one is given once weekly intravenously. So clearly there are going to be some differences. I mean, you're going to have high peak drug levels with timsirolimus. You're going to have low chronic levels with RAD001. Will those translate into different effects? We don't know that at this point in time. I mean, I think we all suspect that indeed there are going to be differences between these two drugs, but we can't be certain. At this point, at this point, sort of indirectly comparing the data, particularly in terms of efficacy, anything you can say at all? Well, the two groups of patients who were treated in those studies are quite different. Totally so different. For right. the timsirolimus data set, it really looks at patients who are untreated and have a poor prognosis, classic poor prognosis findings. Whereas in the RAD situation, the patient group are those who have become refractory. Now, in the RAD study, they also showed an analysis of subsets, looking at whether patients with good, intermediate, or poor prognostic features benefit equally, and so on and so forth. And actually, it's a pretty robust effect because all groups appear to benefit, whether they had good prognosis or poor prognostic disease defined by memorial criteria. So at least with the RAD compound, it wasn't isolated to the poor prognostic subset. And I think we have to say with timsirolimus, we don't know yet whether that would be the case. We know the data for the poor prognosis group. We don't know whether if utilized in an intermediate group up front, it would have a similar effect. We all suspect it would because there's no doubt, and there's no reason to doubt, I should say, that if a drug works in a really sick group of patients, why it wouldn't work in a better group of individuals. Now, do you consider this paper, you know, sort of along the lines of a practice-changing paper, or at least something that would change what people would do, given the fact that RAD is not available in the U.S. and TEM is? I think it will change practice once the drug becomes available, because I'm not sure you can, by extension, infer that timsirolimus will be as effective in those settings. So when the drug is labeled and and receives regulatory approval, then clearly it's a practice-changing paper because it will define treatment for a subset of patients for which we really had a black box. We didn't know how to do it. I mean, we all suspected that these patients would respond to a second or a third drug anecdotally, but we didn't have really good prospective data to show that. So right now in your own practice, outside of a protocol setting, what are you generally doing once a patient has a relapse, say, on sunitinib? So we have been focusing efforts on 
using a second kinase inhibitor like serafinib. We have treated some patients with timsirlimus, but that's usually after failure of all kinase inhibitors. And so I'm not sure that's the right thing to do, just a matter of that's how we approach the question. And we've done that in part to at least get some experience and some data with that kind of an approach. What else has happened here at ASCO that you want to chat about? The second very important paper was the update of the sunitinib trial. And we had all awaited the survival update for this study because it clearly will define what the overall effects of the drug were in patients with advanced kidney cancer. And this paper was presented by Bob Figlin, and he reviewed the original study, updated the information, and presented the survival data. The two survival medians for patients who were treated with interferon and those who treated with sunitinib were quite different. One was about 26.8 months, meaning the patients receiving sunitinib initially, and for interferon, it was in the range of 21 months. The p-value that was calculated was just on the cusp, okay? It was 0.051, so almost significant, but not quite at the 0.05 level. There were some additional subset analyses done. One of the things that happened in the study is that near the end of the trial, when the drug was approved, patients were allowed to cross over from interferon to sunitinib. And there were about 25 of those patients. And so they censored that data. And when you do that, you come up with a median for the interferon-treated patients of 20 months versus 26.8 months, and the p-value there is less than 0.05. So that's a significant difference. They also looked at patients who only received protocol therapy, and that is individuals who for some reason only had sunitinib and never had another drug, and similarly for patients who received only interferon and never crossed over or received another agent. And there, the differences were quite wide, where the patients with uh, sunitinib therapy had a median survival of over 28 months, and for interferon, it was 14 months. So, I mean, we all came away convinced that indeed there is an effect of sunitinib on survival. The lessons this teaches us is that crossover, now in two studies, both the target study and the study, have clearly modified the effect of the drug with regard to differences in survival. We've seen that in the subset analysis where we censored patients in the serafinib trial who were on placebo and crossed over, and now again in the sunitinib trial. Now, sunitinib is probably a much more powerful drug, at least in terms of response rates and its ability to control disease progression. So the differences were much closer there. And I think we have to come away saying that, yes, indeed, although we don't have the magic 0.05 level, we still believe that there is a very important effect here on survival. Any issue in terms of timing? I mean, for example, do you think you would lose anything by starting with serafinib, for example, in an older patient as you've presented? Yeah, I don't know that we know that for certain. I mean, I think we all feel that we should use our best agent up front. Now, our best agent probably is going to be sunitinib. I mean, I think that the data certainly points that way. The question is whether you will have the same effect no matter what sequence you use, whether it's serafinib, sunitinib, or sunitinib, serafinib. We don't know that, and that's a good question to test. I'm not sure that it'll ever be tested in a formal fashion, but clearly it's a very important point. Now, at issue would be if one of them is clearly less toxic than the other, and it's easier for patients to take, then, you know, you always start out with not only your best treatment, but sometimes your least toxic treatment. So good point, but I don't think we really know the answer to that question. Can you talk about the data with serafinib in older patients? That was yours, right? Yeah, that was another analysis that was conducted not necessarily on the TARGETS trial, but on the expanded access study. And we have been looking at this off and on now for several years. And the question has been whether older patients have the same benefit and the same toxicity as younger patients. 
the real issue here is what the definition of old and young is. And there's no agreement, obviously. And for whatever reason, the cutoffs of less than 65 or greater than 65 were chosen. And, and that's sort of been standard because we've done that in other trials. And so in this study, with over 2,500 patients entered by community docs, we looked at whether indeed the older patient and the younger patient were similar in their progression-free survivals, in their toxicity, and it turns out that indeed they were. There didn't appear to be an increase in toxicity in the individual over 65. Now, the real question that we need to go back and look a little bit further is what about if you're 70 or what if you're 75? Does the same hold true? One of the problems with that kind of analysis is that the numbers become smaller as you get to the higher age categories. Not that we can't do it, just that when it was chosen to use these cutoffs, the thought was, well, we have a larger population in both areas to look at. So I think the answer is that the older patient doesn't appear to have any more problems with toxicity, that the benefit, at least in terms of effect on progression, is the same as in the younger individual. Now, what about older people in terms of zunitinib? What do we know about that? I think it's a fairly similar type approach, that when you look at the data in the subset analysis that was presented by Bob Mozer, we see the same effects in the younger and older patients. And there was another abstract presented actually on bevacizumab, again, showing the same thing. So, I mean, I think you come away thinking that all of these targeted drugs are tolerated both in the younger patient as well as in the older patient, and that you don't need necessarily to be concerned about enhanced toxicity or lack of an effect, and you don't need to modify doses because all these doses really were equivalent in these populations. What about the update that was presented on the Avorin trial? Can you review what the trial looked at and what they presented here? The Avorin study was, again, updated by Bernard Escudier. So this was the second year that we had a look at the Avorin data. And the Avorin study was a very straightforward study in which bevacizumab plus interferon was compared to interferon alone. Last year, the presentation focused on efficacy, demonstrating that progression-free survival was going to be basically doubled when you use bevacizumab in combination with interferon. And the response rate was likewise doubled. It went from about oh, 15% to 30% in an approximate way. So both effects were indeed the same. We saw both increase. Now, the presentation this year When the Europeans looked at the data, because this was a European study, they looked very carefully at the data with regard to what the effects of interferon were on toxicity and what the frequency of interferon dose reduction was. And many of us have brought up the fact that interferon may have a limited role here. It may have a role of increasing toxicity, but I'm not sure one can categorically state that because clearly when you double the effect with the drug, you must conclude that there has to be some interaction here. So what Dr. Scudier did was to look at the patients who had dose reductions of interferon. The average duration of interferon treatment in the study is somewhere around four months, but there were about half the patients who had dose reductions early on. And so what they did is they took these individuals and compared this group to the group that had continuing dosing of interferon at the level specified in the study. And they looked at toxicity, And as one would expect, patients tolerate lower doses of interferon better than higher doses. And so there was less toxicity in that group. And number two, they looked at outcome. And it's a subset analysis, so it needs to be taken in the context of what these really mean. And what it showed was really no difference between patients who had dose reductions of interferon and those that did not. So the question has sort of been put forward is, can a lower dose of interferon be sufficient and 
clearly easier to tolerate for patients than the schedule that was utilized in the study, one of three, six, and nine million units. And so at least these data support that that's the case. And it even speaks to the issue of, you know, is interferon 100% necessary? Because as you start to reduce the dose, perhaps you can almost eliminate the drug. Now, we cannot, obviously, at this point in time, but it does sort of go into that direction. So lower doses of interferon are acceptable. And I think most physicians who have used interferon recognize that you can give two and three million units three times a week quite easily as compared to, let's say, nine million or 18 million units where the toxicity is much, much greater. Any way to dissect out how much of this actually is the interferon? A lot of people talk about your study looking at Bevalone versus Bev and Erlotinib, which since it was sort of negative, people look at it as a single-agent Bev study. Can you talk about what you saw there? And you know, given the fact that we don't have an answer to this question, what your gut feeling is about how much the interferon is contributing? So I wish we had an answer because it would make our lives a little bit easier as we enter into the stage of using bevacizumab as a treatment for renal cancer in the United States. We do not. All we do is have the data that I presented and ultimately published in which we did have about 100 patients, half of whom received bevacizumab only, the other half of whom received bevacizumab plus erlotinib. Now, the erlotinib didn't have any effects except the usual toxicity associated with that drug. The median progression-free survival for the group as a whole was about nine months. And when we looked at the two arms, there was very little difference. They were both in the range of nine months, maybe one a little bit less than nine, the other a little bit more than nine. And the response rate in both arms was in the range of 13 to 14%. So this would be our de facto bevacizumab monotherapy experience that's available in a randomized blinded setting. And when we look at the data from the Avorin study and also from the CLGB study, because now we have two large groups of patients who've been treated with this combination, one in the United States and one in Europe, both of them show an effect on progression-free survival. The Avorin study progression-free survival data is about 108 eight months or somewhere in that range. The CLGB progression-free survival median is in the range of eight and a half months. They're a little bit different, but the studies were different. One was blinded, one was not. But you come away thinking that monotherapy with bevacizumab, if indeed one can extrapolate from the erlotinib bevacizumab trial, is almost equivalent. Now, maybe a month and a half less than with the combination of interferon and bevacizumab. So you have the sense that the major contribution here is going to be from bevacizumab. That's my impression, that if we had a well-designed study in which we had monotherapy with bevacizumab, we would see a progression-free survival median in the range of nine to 10 months. So can we eliminate interferon? I would like to think we can. Should we eliminate interferon? No, because right now evidence tells us that it's an important drug. And I don't know that, number one, when we get the approval from the FDA, and I'm assuming that within the next year that will happen once the data is submitted there, that the package will be for the combination, just like it is in Europe interferon plus bevacizumab. And really, they recognize that they cannot address the monotherapy question because they just don't have the data right now. What other data do we actually have about Bev monotherapy? I think I remember like an NCI phase two published in New England Journal. Is that, can you talk about that? And was there anything else? There was a monotherapy treatment program with bevacizumab, which was conducted at the NCI by Jim Yang, published probably about five years ago. It was a different group of patients. We're talking about the untreated individual, first systemic therapy exposure. Jim Yang treated patients who had had prior cytokine therapy, so a little different. And there, one would, number one, expect the progression-free survival to be shorter because there are patients who have relapsed and are looking at second-line therapy. 
the median progression-free survival for bevacizumab there was about 4.8 months, just about half. And that's, I think, what one would predict and what one would see. So does they it help us? He saw responses too, though, right? He saw responses. He saw responses in the range of 10%. So, I mean, I think bevacizumab alone produces responses, no question about it. Bevacizumab alone has an effect on disease progression, no question about it. The real issue for us is do we need to add the interferon. Now, many of my colleagues in Europe, as we start to talk about this, recognize that in Europe, because it's labeled right now, that patients are started with interferon plus bevacizumab, and then either doses reduced very rapidly to try to ameliorate toxicity, or the interferon is stopped because the sense is that patients don't tolerate the interferon, and bevacizumab is continued. And so I suspect that would be the way it will be utilized in the United States. Kind of remind. I know it sounds weird, but it sort of reminds me a little bit of what happened with cetuximab and arenatecan and colon cancer, where for regulatory reasons people kind of had to use both, right. but they sort of quickly got out of the arenatecan because of this feeling that it wasn't really the key issue. You think you're right. You know, and American oncologists are just like this. They're going to they'll start out following the paradigm that's established by the regulatory agency, but they'll recognize very quickly that they can eliminate one of these drugs and really not affect outcome. You know, it's interesting. I hear a lot of, every investigator says, well, you know, we can't do indirect comparison between studies, and then they go ahead and do it with that caveat, and it's fine. But it's interesting, you know, when you think about comparing between studies, something like survival, which there's no doubt about what that event is, as opposed to something like progression-free survival and response rate. And I hear a lot of renal investigators comparing indirectly progression-free survival, and I kind of wonder about that because there's so, it seems like such a my take is it seems like kind of a not such a hard endpoint. Well, it is and it isn't. It's hard because it's determined in most of these studies in a very robust way with independent review. So that makes it a legitimate endpoint. But on the other hand, the definition of progression-free survival varies from study to study. The scan interval is exactly. what determines the right. time to progression. And mm-hmm. so if we go back to the study with RAD001, the scan interval was eight weeks and that's exactly what was seen in terms of the improvement in progression. In the serafinib trials, the scan interval was eight weeks, and then it went to 12 weeks. And so they are quite different at times, and we have to keep that in mind. And so very often the progression interval is determined by the scan interval. And so in that sense, it's a much less independent endpoint than is survival. And you're right. I think we have to keep that in mind. And you know, the way I like to compare these kinds of data are to, we'll use progression-free survival because that's all we have right now. We have precious little survival data. But we need to focus on the group of patients and as best we can match the groups. And I like to use the Memorial Sloan Kettering prognostic groups. And what I like to look at is, let's say we'll focus on the favorable group in both categories and say, what is the progression-free survival in both of those groups? And that's not ideal, but it's what we have right now. And I think you're absolutely right, though. This is an endpoint that can be used to get a drug approved, but only within the context of the study. Once we get out of the study and we try to make comparisons across trials, then we have to keep in mind that these are sometimes flawed. What else has happened in renal cell, not just clinically, but maybe in terms of the laboratory that's reported here at ASCO? So I like several of the other oral presentations there. One in particular and I'll give two examples, one from our group and one from Memorial Sloan Kettering, Dr. Mozer and his colleagues. I think the future for us now, because we have all these drugs, we have four or five drugs in renal cancer, 
and several of these drugs appear to be useful in the same population, and it's unclear whether the patient who receives sunitinib is the same patient that will benefit from getting bevacizumab. So how do we approach this? Well, I think if you look at the story in colon cancer that's sort of evolving right now with KRAS mutations, and I'm sure you're talking about that, we need to start to look at these kinds of surrogates in patients with renal cancer. Now, the question is, which of them are going to be valid? I mean, we have focused on a very simple one, and that is the status of the VHL gene, thinking that the VHL gene mutation might be a surrogate for a group of patients who might benefit more from some of these drugs. That's proving not to be the case, because clearly the pathways aren't that simple. So that one of the things that was looked at at this meeting and presented by our colleagues from Morris Sloan Kettering was a study in which they looked at tissue, tumor tissue, And first of all, they looked very carefully at some preclinical studies to try to demonstrate to their satisfaction that one of the nuclear transcription factors we think is very important in this whole pathway, meaning hypoxia-inducible factor, would have an influence on sensitivity to these drugs. And it challenges some of our concepts because in the past, we have sort of suggested that the drug like sunitinib works on tumor vasculature. And that's where it has its major effect. What the group from Memorial did was look at the tumor per se and ask the question, is there a relationship between the level of this transcription factor, hypoxia-inducible factor, and a response to a drug like sunitinib? First in vitro, and then once they felt that they had enough evidence, they moved the data to look at tumor tissue from patients receiving sunitinib. And so the data that they presented in vitro was reasonably good. It showed us that cell lines with high levels of hypoxia-inducible factor measured by Western blots clearly were the lines that responded to a drug like sunitinib in terms of a decrease in proliferation. Now, you know, when I think about it at a real basic level, so when you drop sunitinib into an in vitro system like that, there's no stroma, right? There's no stroma. So it's a it's direct, a direct effect. anti-tumor effect. And so so, I mean, so, why, that, why, yeah. so the question is, why is that? I mean, why are you having this effect? Because it challenges this concept that it's a stromal effect and a, an effect on tumor vasculature. So they looked a little bit more closely to see if they could identify a target downstream within the tumor cell that might indeed be responsible for this effect. And they were able to at least suggest that S6 kinase might well be that target. Now, it's evolving data. But whatever the case is, HIF levels may well be a good way to look at what is going to happen. So if you have a tumor with a very high level of HIF in it, it may well be a tumor that's sensitive and will respond to sunitinib compared to a tumor that doesn't have a high level of HIF or that HIF is undetectable. They looked at... Oh, that's um, interesting. So sunitinib will literally kill some in vitro cells with, you know, in so, vitro. So it didn't kill them. I think it just decreased their proliferation. When you look okay. at the actual data, it wasn't, wasn't cytotoxic okay. classically. And that's where some of the issues may come to the... When this is published, we'll have to look at it more closely. But the curves that they showed were reasonably convincing. However, when you looked at the tumor tissue that they collected from patients who were then being treated with sunitinib, These are mostly primary tumor tissues? I believe it's mostly primary tumor tissues. That's right. And they then categorized them as to uh, low or undetectable HIF or high HIF levels. And the tumors where their levels of HIF were high had a regression rate of above 90% with sunitinib. In the tumors where HIF levels were low, the regression rate was less than 20%. This is in patients? In patients. And so there appeared to be a very good correlation. Now, the number's small. It's only about 30 tumors that they studied. So that the sense here is that is there a predictor that can help us enrich the population 
for sunitinib. Can we look at a tumor and say, yes, that tumor is likely to respond because the level of HIF is high and treat that patient with sunitinib? On the other hand, in the setting where HIF is low, they won't respond. Now, it's good for response. The problem that we'll face is that sometimes the effect is not necessarily tumor regression or resist response. Sometimes the effect is more delay in progression. And so what they didn't give us were really good data on progression-free survival in this particular study. But I think it's a start, and it's a start to try to measure a surrogate that may be utilized because we've looked very carefully at VHL status, and it was clear that the tumors that they were studying from the patients were both VHL wild-type and mutant, and there wasn't a good correlation between HIF levels in those settings. So I thought I heard in the beginning when you started to talk about it, I thought I heard you to say that it did seem to work in vitro, but it didn't in patients. I guess I misunderstood because no, 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 it, it did. It, it, we could see the effect in vitro because that was the first part of their hypothesis is that if we can demonstrate there's an association between HIF levels in vitro and the effect of the drug, then we will look at tumor tissue to try to right. characterize HIF levels. And, and so they found the same thing in the tumor tissue that they studied. Okay, uh, okay. And so it's a preliminary study. It's a small number of tumors. It needs to be validated in larger sample sizes to say, yes, HIF is a good predictor here of what's going to happen to a tumor in terms of regression. Do we have any idea about what fraction of renal cell tumors have elevated HIF? You know, there's not a lot of information here. The other study is an old one. It comes out of Europe, and the HIF levels were looked at not necessarily as a predictor of tumor response, but more as a predictor of progression, how rapidly tumors would grow. And HIF was a poor prognostic factor. Tumors with high HIF levels appear to, if I remember correctly, do worse. And so we just don't have a lot of information here right now. And I think this group should be congratulated for at least trying to look at a new surrogate. And it's certainly not something that we wouldn't expect to perhaps be important, okay? It's in the pathway. Remember, HIF is within the pathway of VEGF because it is the transcription factor which is responsible for induction of a large number of growth factors, among which are VEGF, PDGF, and so on. So it's reasonable to think that it might have an effect. Yeah, no, it's awesome to see that kind of thing happening. What do you think we might see if we look at something like Bevacizumab, Serafinib, or Tempsorolinus in this regard? I don't think we can assume that it's going to be the same effect because sunitinib may well have effects that we didn't anticipate directly on tumor cells. I've sort of, as I've approached this issue with sunitinib, have made statements that sunitinib doesn't appear to have a direct effect on tumor cells. These data go against that whole grain, that indeed it does. Now, when we have looked at in vitro assessments of sunitinib, it's a very difficult study to do. It's not a simple, straightforward study. There are ways to demonstrate effects of sunitinib in vitro. One of the, the major concerns some of my colleagues have about the study were the sunitinib concentrations utilized, whether they were on the high range that are difficult to achieve in patients, and that may be the case. So what I would like to say about the study is, number one, it's a very intriguing study, that it may be a lead for us. Number two, that we need to see the data in much more detail so that we can look at it and convince ourselves that the methodology is correct and the concentrations of sunitinib were adequate and so on. And if indeed everybody's satisfied and the data get published, then we need to validate it because it is the one lead that we have right now that looks very strong. I mean, the data that were presented looked very convincing that indeed this is one surrogate to look at. And we've always talked about how to enrich patient populations for drug effect, and this is one way. Similar to the CA9 story in high-dose IL-2. If we can enrich the patient population by using CA9, uh, high expression of CA9, then the effect of IL-2 becomes magnified, and it's a more reasonable drug to utilize. 
we then followed that up with a study of pharmacogenomics, trying to understand the toxicity patterns that are being seen in patients who are treated with kinase inhibitors. And we selected sunitinib as our kinase inhibitor and collected DNA, genomic DNA, from peripheral blood in patients who were receiving sunitinib. And we divided patients into two categories, those who had grade 2 or less toxicity and those who had grade 2 or more toxicity. And we looked at SNPs as a measure of variability within the genome. And the study is a difficult one because you're looking at 11,000 different SNPs and you're trying to select which of the SNPs might indeed be related to toxicity. And what are the SNPs again? These are polymorphisms within DNA, single amino acid substitutions within a gene that may well be different in you than in me, okay? And they will give variability to, for example, a metabolic pathway. And you're looking at a large number of enzymes, and you're trying to select out of this whole group the enzymes that might indeed be related to the outcome. So we were able to, I think, select nine different targets that may well be related to the toxicities that were seen. We are going to go back using a larger sample size prospectively look at these nine genes and see whether indeed we can validate whether they are related to the toxicity. The whole purpose here was to say, can we predict who's going to have severe toxicity from the drug as compared to who is not by looking at some of the metabolic pathways? So what have you seen so far? We've selected nine genes. We don't have the actual analysis done at this point in time. We have the genes selected, and what the next step is to use those nine, because the purpose of this was to serve us as a way to select the genes which we would look at. And I didn't do the analysis, and I guess I'm not familiar enough with the methodology to explain in detail how this was done. It's a decision tree type analysis. And however they do this, they come up with nine genes that may well be related to the toxicity that was seen, and then we have to validate it and look in prospective way to determine whether indeed these genes are relevant. This has been done with other drugs, certainly, but there it's been done where we've known the metabolic pathways and we've focused on, for example, UGT in arenatekin, for example, in terms of predicting toxicity. Here, we were sort of searching for a variety of genes which may not even be apparent to determine whether indeed they'd be related to toxicity. But I think I did see some data looking at SNPs in BEV in breast cancer. I'm not aware of those, so it's possible yeah, that, that you have that was presented at the San Antonio yeah. Breast Cancer Meeting last year, where they did see a correlation between these SNPs and hypertension. What we're doing now is searching databases to see whether there are correlations between some of these SNPs. And it's a large undertaking. It means we need a large data set. We need to go back to some of the clinical trials where we have DNA available and look at it. So, I mean, I think... With the kinase inhibitors, it's sort of a different approach. Now, will this help us understand which group of patients respond? Well, it's conceivable that as we start to dissect it out that there may even be SNPs that will be predictive of response, and so I think we have to keep an open mind here. Any other sort of leads that you think maybe in the next few years are going to have clinical applications? Well, I mean, the data that keeps coming out are with combinations, right? and that's sort of the next frontier, if you will. Can we combine these drugs in a fashion to enhance the outcome, the efficacy? And right now the answer is we don't know. I caution people against prematurely using combinations at this point in time because we have seen with some of the combinations some toxicity that is somewhat worrisome and somewhat problematic. So one of the papers that was presented again for the third time was the serafinib bevacizumab 
phase one trial that Jeff Sassman has conducted. And the data was again presented as another follow-up to summarize it wholly. The response rate remains robust. It's above 40%. The toxicity clearly is problematic, and one needs to reduce doses of both, bevacizumab and serafinib, in order to make the combination tolerable. So the real question is whether the dose reductions will have an effect in a prospective assessment of efficacy. We don't know. Should you use the combination clinically? No, not at this point. Number one, BEV is not a drug that's labeled in renal cancer, so I think the toxicity data would be somewhat problematic. The other combination, which has been intriguing, has been sunitinib and bevacizumab. And that combination has been studied in two centers, one at Memorial, one at the Cleveland Clinic. The outcomes at Memorial were that you could give full doses of both drugs together, but within a cycle or two, one developed toxicity that was a problem. And there were three or four cases of hemolytic uremic syndrome that were noticed. And that's a very difficult syndrome to manage and could be life-threatening. So the combination at full doses is something that was abandoned in terms of further studies. At the Cleveland Clinic, we've done the same thing. We've not seen HUS-type syndrome yet, but many of our patients, as they continue therapy, have had dose reductions because of other toxicity. So I think you come away thinking that the kinase inhibitors, meaning serafinib and sunitinib, are sometimes difficult to combine with other agents, that it's not straightforward, that you just can't drop them in. Even though they're oral agents, one would like to think that they would be acceptable in terms of their side effect profiles. That's not the case. I think we always have to be concerned about the kind of hematologic toxicity we saw with the sunitinib combinations and long-term cardiovascular toxicity because we just don't know what that will be. On the other hand, if you just look at bevacizumab as a single agent, it appears to be a drug that you can combine with other agents, especially with the mTOR inhibitors. And that's where a lot of interest is right now is the combination with Timsorolimus, the combination with Everolimus, and that work is progressing. But right now, I think it's fair to say that data on combinations is preliminary, that we really don't have any evidence to say, number one, that it's tolerated long-term, and number two, although we'd like to think that efficacy will be improved, we don't know that for sure. So I think we're still not in that area. We have to await further studies. And one of the studies in the United States that's looking at combinations is the BEST trial from the cooperative groups, an important study. BEST trial is I think it's an ECOG trial, ECOG trial, and Keith Flaherty is the PI for that study, and there are four arms to that study. And one arm is an important arm, and that is another monotherapy arm with bevacizumab. So we'll have more data on bevacizumab alone, and bevacizumab then is being combined with either timsorolimus or serafinib, and then serafinib and timsorolimus. The study is a nice one because it's a large study. It's a randomized phase two, and it's hoped that the result will give us which of the four regimens, whether monotherapy or the combinations, are the better of the group. What it doesn't include, however, is what many people consider to be the best drug for the treatment of kidney cancer, and that is sunitinib. And so it's a little bit flawed from that perspective that we won't have a comparator to sunitinib at this point in time. So I think that's an issue. In Europe, my colleague Bernard Escudier has just started a randomized phase two study in which bevacizumab interferon, sunitinib, and then a third combination of timsorolimus and bevacizumab are being studied. And again, it's a phase two study, two combinations versus single therapy with sunitinib. An interesting trial, and all of these are sort of designed to say, can we demonstrate that, for example, a combination is going to be better than monotherapy? And in the European trial, monotherapy is sunitinib. In the United States trial, it's bevacizumab. All phase two studies. And I guess it's monotherapy, but also, theoretically, afterwards, they can receive the drugs as a single agent. Sure, absolutely, they can. 
Any predictions about what we're going to see? I predict that for the United States trial, that monotherapy with bevacizumab will probably be equivalent of many of these because, I mean, the PFSs are going to be in the range of 9 to 12 months. And so it may well be difficult to dissect out which is the best. Now, it may be easy to dissect out which is the easiest to take because the side effects will be the least with bevacizumab. In the European trial, I'm not sure. I would consider the data with sunitinib still superior to Bev plus interferon. So I'm thinking that that would be the superior trial. But I think the experience with Bevacizumab and Timsorolimus is still limited. So we don't know. I mean, I think we have to keep an open mind here, okay? And my prediction is that I'm not sure that combinations are going to be the way to treat patients. It may well be that sequential use of individual agents may be the same ultimately for patients as using a combination with additive side effects. I mean, I guess the whole, I would think the point here would be, look, not necessarily for a home run, but for something, some kind of synergy that, you know, maybe would give a big bump out there. What they're looking for are two things. Number one is, is there a bump to the complete response rate? Okay. If we see the complete response rate go from 2% to 10%, that's important because that means that we have a chance here for long-term disease control with the drugs. The second is, what is the duration of disease control? Is it going to be longer with the combination as compared to monotherapy? Now, if we have monotherapy like sunitinib that has a progression-free survival median of about 10 to 12 months, it's going to be difficult to get to the 14 to 16 months that we would need to show that. And you may buy a lot of toxicity for that. So it's going to be an interesting evaluation of the data. So I guess you're not expecting a bigger hit in terms of getting up over 20 months or something like that? I'm not expecting a bigger hit at this point in time. I mean, I just have not seen that kind of information. I thought that we had a chance with these two drugs, Bev and Sunitinib, but the toxicity profile just precluded their use at full doses.